This morning we're blessed to have C.J. Francis preaching for us. Uh, C.J. is a student at Westminster Seminary here in Est beautiful, sunny Escondido. Uh, Escondido means hidden, in case you were wondering. Because at one time it probably seemed hidden, but uh, it's not very hidden now. But uh, C.J. is also an intern at uh, New Life Irvine, where he teaches uh, junior and senior high students. And C.J. is married. Forgive me, what is your wife's name? Angel. Angel. And C.J., believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, but C.J. and Angel were actually at Res O.C. the first couple weeks yeah. of our existence. The love service. Yeah. yeah. And uh, um, uh, Bryce, Bry Bryce had, you know, uh, mentioned that he was living at Tustin at the time and said, hey, you know, there's a really good church that PCA, as much as we wanted them to stay, uh, we, we, we felt it was like our due diligence to say, you know, there's a church that's really good that's, that's much closer to you. And so uh, he stayed there, uh, much to our chagrin. But anyway, uh, New Life was blessed, and, uh, and we are very blessed to have CJ here. So come, welcome, CJ. Thank you, brother. Good morning, Resurrection OC. Good morning. Good morning. I'm grateful to be able to stand before you all and preach the Word of God. We're reading from Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. And it reads, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thus far the reading of God's word. The children are dismissed to go and do their lesson. Can we take Henry? Henry, do you want to come play with us? I have balloons. You want to come get a balloon? You can come. Sorry. All right. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for you gathering us together this morning. And I thank you that just as sure as we've gathered together, that you draw near to us with the word to speak. And I pray that you do the, just that. You speak through me without me getting in the way. I pray that you would supply grace, mercy, and power for us to love and, and trust you and your word and obey it so that your son would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On May 9th, 1961, John Lewis and two other men entered a, a bus loading terminal, a Greyhound bus loading terminal in Rock Hill, South Carolina. These three African Americans were part of a larger group that would become historically known as the Freedom Riders of the Civil Rights Movement. The Freedom Riders would travel the U.S. and intentionally occupy white-only spaces for the purpose of racial integration. 
And John Lewis recounts that almost immediately, once they entered the bus loading terminal, the whites only section, they were severely beaten, attacked by a group of white men. What was the reason for this attack? Well, in short, John Lewis, a black man in 1961, was an unwelcome member of mainstream American society. By virtue of his skin color, John Lewis was treated as an unlovable social other, unworthy of the basic dignity and respect that was enjoyed by the, everyone in the majority culture. In our text this morning, we meet another unlovable social other, a man who, like John Lewis, was an unwelcome member of the society in which he lived. We meet this man as he, he himself has a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, just want to put this out there so that if you forget everything else I say, you, you get the main takeaway from the sermon. The main point, the main takeaway from the sermon is because Jesus loves the unlovable, let's step our love game up. Because Jesus loves the unlovable, let's step our love game up. Let's strive to love better. Three main points, three points to help you follow along as we navigate the text. Point number one, Jesus' love for the unlovable. Point number two, our hopeless love deficiency. And point number three, hope for the loveless. I'll repeat those. Point number one, Jesus' love for the unlovable. Point number two, our hopeless love deficiency. And point number three, hope for the loveless. Jesus' love for the unlovable, our first point. Now when, we, when Luke introduces Zacchaeus, the main character of this short story, when Luke introduces Zacchaeus, he does it in a way that makes it pretty clear Zacchaeus isn't meant to be a lovable character. In the first three verses, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is short, he's super wealthy, and he's a tax collector. Now you ain't got to be from the first century AD to, to get that tax collectors aren't typically perceived as the most likable people. If a tax collector is around you, it's because they're trying to take your money point blank period and even more so back then tax collectors had a reputation for overcharging people they they had a reputation for collecting more than people actually owed so that they could fatten their own pockets so Luke is making it clear from the beginning that Zacchaeus is an outcast a reject a misfit but misfits can be likable too right take the Grinch for example we just came out of the Christmas holiday season we've all read the story or, or seen at least one of the movies. The Grinch, he, he lives on the outskirts of Whoville, in the mountains, by himself. He's lonely. He's miserable. He's got a cat face, a snub nose, and a pot belly. He's mean. He hates Christmas. He's mean, and he's green. But see, the Grinch, at least he has this cute little puppy who adores him. He's got someone who loves him. Now, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus ain't even got a puppy. He's just miserable. And like the Grinch, he deserves it. Zacchaeus is a greedy little tax collector. Let him be miserable. But now the Grinch, since he has this cute little puppy that adores him, you're led to think, okay, maybe there's something about this character that's likable. Maybe there's something about this character that makes him redeemable. You know, maybe something happened to make him hate Christmas. Maybe there was something that happened that made him so mean. He's a redeemable character. But not Zacchaeus. Luke is telling us that Zacchaeus is a misfit, but not in a likable way. He's an unlovable social other. But now here comes Jesus. Luke tells us that Jesus is passing through. And in verse 3, Zacchaeus 
is trying to see who Jesus is. Now, by the way, if there's any point in Luke's introducing the Zacchaeus that's meant to attract us to him or and, and hold him up as a model for us to emulate, it's this point right here. That Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was trying to see who Jesus was. You know, it's, it's still kind of early in the year. Most of us maybe already gave up on all of our... Um, what do you call them? Resolutions. Yeah. Resolutions. Brain fart. <laughs> our New Year's resolutions. But this is a quest that we can all take up. This could be a resolution from which all of our other resolutions flow. Let's all seek to see who Jesus is. Let's, let's seek and, and, and strive to know who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Amen. I always get scared saying that in the Presbyterian church. You never know what to expect, but <laughs> we're small and intimate enough that. All right. So moving along, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. But as the story progresses, we see that it was really Jesus who was seeking Zacchaeus. What does Jesus say? Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now it was really easy for us to read that little word, must. I must stay at your house today and, and just read over it. You can read quickly and, and, and completely miss it. You know, see it as a throwaway word. But if we miss that little word, must, we, we make a big mistake. It's a very important way for Jesus to be speaking, especially in Luke's gospel, in, in Luke's telling of Jesus' story. Every time that Luke has Jesus using this must type of language, I must be doing this, or it is necessary that I do this, it's a signal. It's, it's, this type of language is meant to tell us that Jesus is a man on a mission. Jesus was the Son of God sent to earth by his heavenly Father. He had some very specific tasks that it was absolutely necessary for him to accomplish. Now, I don't know if you've ever listened to Navy SEALs talk or heard stories about them, especially when it comes to, you know, achieving a goal or accomplishing a very difficult task. But Navy SEALs are some of the most resolute people that you'll ever meet. I mean, just the, the grueling training program that they have to go through before they can even be called Navy SEALs. The most intense part of their training program, the most intense week is called hell week for a reason it's five and a half days long during these entire five and a half days they sleep a total of four hours they run a total of over 200 miles these five and a half days and each day over 20 hours of physical training it's called hell week for a reason but those who actually go on to make it through they exhibit an indomitable will that says I will stop at nothing Nothing, I will let nothing get in the way of me accomplishing what I have been assigned to do. That's the kind of weight that this little word must carries for Jesus here. When he says, I must stay with you in your house today, Zacchaeus. In this case, it was necessary for Jesus to come stay with Zacchaeus. It was necessary for Jesus to show Zacchaeus the love of God when nobody else loved him. And when nobody else wanted him to be loved. And Jesus wasn't going to let anyone stop him from loving Zacchaeus, especially a crowd that didn't appreciate Jesus breaking their cultural protocols to go in and stay with the tax collector. What does the crowd say in verse 7? He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. A sinner. 
Zacchaeus was an unlovable social other. But Jesus would let nothing get in the way of him showing the unlovable Zacchaeus the love of God. So this crowd, they didn't appreciate Jesus going in to stay with Zacchaeus. Which brings us to our second point. Our hopeless love deficiency. This crowd's reaction in verse 7, it reveals something about them. Their reaction reveals what we can call a hopeless love deficiency. They have a hopeless love deficiency towards the social other. Not only do they refuse to personally love Zacchaeus, but they refuse to have Jesus love him as well. And there's a reason why I say that they don't just have a love deficiency, but it's a hopeless love deficiency. You see, this isn't the first time that this crowd acts as an obstacle to Jesus loving the social other. Right before we meet Zacchaeus in, in chapter 19, right before this passage, we have the story of Jesus healing a blind beggar. Luke 18, verses 35 to 43. Jesus is passing by, and he's got this crowd following him. When this blind beggar hears that it's Jesus who's passing by, he starts yelling. He says, hey, yo, Jesus, help me. I need you. And what does the crowd do? They try to shut him up. They tell him, be quiet. Jesus ain't got time for you. And what does Jesus do? He commands them to bring the blind man to him. And he heals him. So right there, right before we even come across the keys in this passage, Jesus has to correct this crowd for their love deficiency toward the social other. Their lack of love toward the social other. He shows them, that's not me. You ain't going to put limits on my love. I have love for those that you deem as unlovable. But clearly, by the time they get to Jericho, this crowd hasn't changed. They're, the crowd is still the same. Their love deficiency is still on display for Zacchaeus. It's a hopeless situation. Now, it, it, it's easy to see this love deficiency when we look at this crowd. But what about us? Who is your Zacchaeus? Who is your blind beggar? Who would you be appalled at Jesus loving? You see, I don't know how your 2020 went, but mine wasn't so great. I mean, and this year hasn't started out on a good note. <laughs> I mean, did you see the same news headlines that I saw? Same types of social media posts? When our children and grandchildren look at the highlight reel of 2020 and 2021 in America, are they going to see love that crosses cultural and political lines? You see, we're not that different from this crowd in Luke 19. 2020 brought the spotlight back on one of the biggest historical wedges that has separated people in the church in America. One of the most polarizing issues historically that has split the church is the issue of race and racism. There are people on both sides of the aisle who find the other side intolerable. Are the people on the other side of the argument your Zacchaeus? No matter what side of the argument you find yourself on, it is a non-negotiable that God is calling us to love the people on the other side. Whether or not you agree with what people are saying on the other side of the argument, 
it is a non-negotiable that God is calling you to love the people on the other side. And I'm not saying that there's not a right side and a wrong side in the argument. But what I am saying is no matter what side you land on, no matter what side you stand on, it's a non-negotiable that God is calling us to love the people on the other side. Well, you see, we're not that different from this crowd in Luke 19. They had good reasons for how they felt about Zacchaeus. They had a number of justifications for why they treated him as a, a social other. I mean, they had their political reasons. As a Jewish tax collector for the Roman government, Zacchaeus was, he was seen as a traitor to his nation. He was seen as disloyal to the Jewish people. Zacchaeus' unpatriotic politics made him an unlovable social other. Now, if you consider yourself to be patriotic, what has your disposition been toward those who criticize America for historic and structural inequalities and injustices? What have been your reactions to those who go out and protest against wrongs that they feel like America hasn't fully recovered from. How well have you been loving those who support the decision to kneel during the national anthem because they feel that America hasn't lived up to its ideals of liberty and justice for all? Have you been treating these people like unlovable social others? What kind of names you've been calling those people? What kind of feelings have you been feeling towards them? And I'm not saying that you don't love them unless you agree with them. But I'm asking, have you loved them enough to give them a sympathetic listen and to understand what it is that they're saying? You've been praying for them? Longing for them to know the love of God in Jesus Christ? Or are you more concerned with being right? And see this crowd in Luke 19... They also had their moral reasons for how they treated Zacchaeus. As a money-hungry tax collector, Zacchaeus deserved to be despised for his greed. He deserved to be ostracized, canceled for his own acts of economic oppression and injustice. Zacchaeus' moral decisions made him a sinner, a social other. If, if you maybe consider yourself to be an activist, or one who is sympathetic to those who cry out against inequalities and injustices? How have you reacted to those on the other side of the moral argument? How have you reacted to those who say that there is no systemic racism? How well have you been respond How well have you been loving those who respond, all lives matter, when they hear the assertion that black lives matter? Has their apparent moral apathy made them unlovable social others to you? What kind of names have you been calling those people? What kind of feelings have you been feeling towards them? Again, I'm not saying that you don't love them unless you agree with them. But I'm asking, have you loved them enough to give them a, a sympathetic listen and to truly understand what they're saying? Have you been praying for them? Have you been longing for them to know the love of God in Jesus? Or are you more concerned with being right? 
You see, we're not that different from this crowd in Luke 19. And if my thesis is correct, if we exhibit as much of a love deficiency as this crowd does in Luke 19, then our situation is just as hopeless as theirs. You see, our situation is hopeless because our loveless state should mean that we're unlovable to God. What's one of the clearest expressions of love? Forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 reads, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So our lack of forgiveness, our lack of love, should make us unlovable to God. 1 John 4, 8 Whoever does not love God does not know him, because God is love. You see, to not know God is to not be known by God in a, or, or loved by God in a saving way. So our, our loveless state should make us unlovable to God. 1 John 3.10 This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. If 2020 has shown us that we have such a hard time loving even other Christians who have differing viewpoints and perspectives from our own, then our loveless state should make us unlovable to God. I mean, we even heard it earlier in, in, in God's law that we read, Matthew 5, where Jesus said, anyone who is angry with their brother is liable to judgment. So then where do we go? I mean, I told you all from the beginning, the main takeaway from this sermon is because Jesus loves the unlovable, let's step our love game up. Let's strive to love better. But where do we go when we realize that we're in such a hopeless situation, that our love deficiency is so hopeless, just as hopeless as this crowd's in Luke 19? This brings us to our last point. Hope for the loveless. As I was writing the song, a, star, a song, as I was writing the sermon, a song started playing in my head. Some of y'all might know it. I don't know. It came out a few years ago. It's a song by Rihanna. The hook says, we found love in a hopeless place. And if you don't know the song, uh, don't feel bad. My pastor had to ask me who Rihanna was and he Googled her. And <laughs> but um, the song says, we found love in a hopeless place. That was true for Skiis. He found love in a hopeless place. We can find hope for our loveless condition in Zacchaeus' story. Now, why do I say that Zacchaeus found love in a hopeless place? What made the situation so hopeless? Well, I already mentioned that Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was wealthy. He was super rich. When Luke threw that little detail out there, when he gave us that detail telling us that Zacchaeus was rich, there's no doubt that he wants us to think back to something that Jesus said only 20 verses earlier in Luke's gospel. 20 verses earlier in Luke chapter 18 verses 18 and 29. We have Jesus telling another rich man. If you really desire eternal life as, as much as you say you do. Then go sell everything. Give everything that you have to the poor. You'll have treasure up in heaven. And come follow me. What does the rich man do? He becomes sad. He becomes very sad. And what does Jesus say? 
Jesus says it's it's easier for a camel to squeeze into the itty bitty hole on the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that wealth brings with it a love deficiency that makes it pretty much impossible for a rich person to love the poor more than he loves his things, more than he loves his possessions. It's impossible for a rich person to come and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Because he loves his things more than he loves people. More than he loves me. You see, wealth has a habit of putting people in a hopeless, loveless situation. And that's the precise situation we find Zacchaeus in, in Luke 19. But that's not the end of Zacchaeus' story, is it? We see that in Zacchaeus' story, Jesus does the impossible. He shows us that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Zacchaeus vowed to give half of his possessions to the poor and to go above and beyond in making right any wrongs that he had done and loving money more than he loved people, more than loving God. And why? What happened to transform Zacchaeus from being a helpless, hopeless, loveless man into a man who was energized to go out and love the poor social other? What happened? Well, he met Jesus. Jesus came and stayed with him and showed him the love of God when no one else would. Again, Jesus showed that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Only Jesus can transform the most loveless and unlovable sinner into a person energized to love unsocial, unlovable social others. Only Jesus can meet us when we're most unlovable in our hopeless love deficiency, make a home in our hearts, and energize us to love those that we've deemed unlovable. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. That's what he means when he says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And now how, how, how did Jesus go about doing that? How did Jesus go about saving the lost hopeless sinners that he came to seek well you see Jesus moved on from Zacchaeus' house Zacchaeus' house was Jesus' last major stop on his way to Jerusalem Zacchaeus' house was Jesus' last major stop on his journey to the cross see at the cross Jesus laid down his life to save hopeless, loveless unlovable sinners like me and you at the cross Jesus laid down his life and made the unlovable the beloved at the cross Jesus laid down his life and made the loveless the lovers and he gave us the ultimate example of a love that knows no limits at the cross Jesus gave us the ultimate example of a love that crosses all man-made lines to reach the unlovable social other. So now what do we do? What do we do to see the impossible made possible in our lives just like it happened for Zacchaeus? What do we do to experience the type of love that energizes us to love the unlovable in our own hopeless situation? Well, we do exactly what Zacchaeus did. We gladly answer Jesus' call to hurry and come to him. We put our faith in Jesus. 
we believe that he truly came to seek and save lost, unlovable, loveless sinners like ourselves. Like, like Zacchaeus, we gladly welcome and receive Jesus into our lives, into our hearts. But we have to make sure that we're receiving the whole Jesus. You know, we can't welcome this potluck Jesus where we pick and choose what we want to put on our plate and leave the rest on the table. We have to receive the whole Jesus. The Jesus that loves those that we don't like to love. We have to receive and welcome all of Jesus into our lives. The Jesus who lets nothing, nothing stop him from loving the unlovable. It's that Jesus who loves us and transforms us to go and do the same. I started this sermon off by telling y'all how John Lewis was treated as an unlovable social other in that bus terminal in 1961. Well, in 2009, almost 50 years later, Elwin Wilson, a former member of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, he apologized to Lewis and his friends. Elwin Wilson says he was the one who led that brutal attack that day in 1961. And he says that it was later coming to know Jesus, which transformed him to be able to apologize to and love a man that he formerly saw as unlovable. And John Lewis, he was also a professing Christian who credited the love of Christ for his own involvement in the civil rights movement. He said, I never thought in all these many years that someone like Mr. Wilson would be apologizing to me. John Lewis said, I never thought that this would happen. It says something about the power of love and the power of grace. You see, it's through believing in the Jesus who loves the unlovable. It's through believing in that Jesus that we are met in our hopeless love deficiency with a love that knows no limits. Because Jesus loves the unlovable, let's step our love game up. Let's strive to love better. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, every family in heaven and on earth finds its origin in you. We pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with all power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ, who loves the unlovable, would dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all your church to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Now to you, O oh God, you who are able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.